Whole Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 57, for December 2023. Murder Most Foul, part one. East is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballackinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Murder. It's been part of humanity for eons. Even in religious texts, it makes an early appearance. In the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, tells the tale of Cain, son of Adam and Eve, slaying his brother Abel. The Quran tells essentially the same story, but it's about the brothers Habil and Kabil. You will hear of seven murders today on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Three are from the 19th century, four are from the early 20th century. Six are by guns, one by gas. I will cover some poisonings and bludgeonings in future episodes. And in one case today, yes, the butler did do it. I do not intend to turn all bones considered into a true crime podcast. There are plenty of those to go around. This is just a temporary diversion into man's inhumanity to man. Welcome to Murder Most Foul, Part 1, All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. This month, I am doing something a little different. You're going to hear stories about murder victims interred at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Gun violence, as you probably know, is nothing new in the United States. Of the seven people you hear about today, six were killed by gunshot in years ranging from 1843 to 1937. Two of the stories will be told by two of my fellow tour guides, Tom Keels, whom you've heard before, and Sarah Hamill, from whom I learned the amazing story of Ella Jarden. I thought I would let her tell the story. There was an eighth story, but after I tried to trim it down to a 15 or 20 minute segment, I gave up. 
I decided I would make it a podcast all its own. It involved teenage marriage, an Australian husband caught in the act with his young stenographer, a shooter who seemed to faint at the least provocation, the attempted defense of temporary insanity, and front-page coverage of the trial for two weeks. You will hear of Oscar Rosier in a future podcast. Now, homicide always attracts attention. At one time, this was also true of suicide. The number of people who ended their own lives with a pistol or illuminating gas is staggering. Homicide and suicide almost always ended up on the first page, at least for the day or two, as do other titillating stories. I picked three dates at random to test my theory. I chose 5-5-1905, and 3-30-1930. I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Here's what I found on the front page. May 5th, 1905. Little girl killed. Playmate may die. Slain by Cossacks on church steps. Woods, the scene of new riots in which seven people die. Bullets hit altar. December 12, 1912, front page. Girl in male togs enjoyed being a man. Actress's stepdaughter arrested as runaway. Mrs. Trost calm as law demands life for murder. And then skip ahead to March 30, 1930. Man and wife killed by illuminating gas in bedroom of home. Actress attempts suicide when diet fails to help her. One dead, man dying of mysterious burns. It's always there on the front page, pretty much no matter what edition you choose. For years, the term, if it bleeds, it leads, has dictated the placement of news, first in newspapers, and then eventually on radio and television. It's part of a practice called yellow journalism. Yellow journalism started in the 1890s with papers run by Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Feature stories that appeal to primitive passions and is shocking to certain moral or aesthetic sensitivities. Its outstanding features include an appeal to romantic impulses, a great deal of personal details about celebrated or notorious individuals, muckraking crusades, and a variety of new stunts, special features, typographical devices to attract attention. In other words, the newspapers employed human interest material, particularly the news that shocks or thrills, as circulation bait. They did not follow the method of objective reporting, but they dealt with their material in the same way you might see in a dime novel of those days. Now, prior to 1860, newspapers had largely ignored news concerning the personal affairs of individuals. Such news was a matter for small-town talk of whisperings, but not printed publicly. Small towns were being replaced by small neighborhoods in big cities, and the inhabitants were eager to read about local gossip. In the hands of William Randolph Hearst, news became a bauble to distract or amuse, or a series of stunts to electrify a pleasure-seeking audience. He taught 
his reporters how to extract the ultimate heartthrob out of every story, to trace imaginatively the human interest details, to describe minutely the personal reactions of the actors. If Hearst was not an artist, he was at least a showman. His papers were designed for the masses who found their lives mechanically ordered and dull, and other newspapers saw his success and they followed suit. The technique remains alive today in supermarket publications like the National Enquirer, The Globe, The Star, Weekly World News, and many others. The term yellow journalism purportedly derived from an early comic strip called The Yellow Kid, which both Pulitzer and Hearst published at one time. The Yellow Kid was a bald, snaggle-toothed, barefoot boy who wore an oversized yellow nightshirt, and he hung around in a slum alley, typical of certain areas of squalor that existed in the late 19th century in New York City. With a goofy grin, the kid habitually spoke in ragged, peculiar slang, which was printed on his shirt, a device meant to lampoon advertising billboards. The two newspapers that ran the Yellow Kid, Pulitzer's World and Hearst's Journal American, quickly became known as the Yellow Kid Papers. This was contracted to the Yellow Papers, and the term Yellow Kid Journalism was shortened to Yellow Journalism. The stories you will hear today are all sensationalistic and somewhat titillating. Some I will read to you directly from the newspapers. Some have been edited for brevity and clarity. Tom Keels will read a chapter from his marvelous book, Wicked Philadelphia. You don't want to miss that. All the stories involve the taking of a human life by another human being. In other words, homicide. Homicide is an act in which a person kills another person. A homicide requires only a volitional act or an omission that causes the death of another. And thus a homicide may result from accidental, reckless, or negligent acts, even if there is no intent to cause harm. Homicides can be divided into many overlapping legal categories. Murder, manslaughter, justifiable homicide, assassination, killing in war, either following the laws of war or as a war crime. Euthanasia is homicide. Capital punishment is homicide. Homicide depends on the circumstances of the death. These different types of homicides are often treated very differently in human societies. Some are considered crimes. Others are permitted or even ordered by the legal system. Today, the topic is murder. Let's get started with a story from 1863 that has virtually nothing to do with the Civil War. In the last half of the 19th century, Schuylkill County and Carbon County in northeastern Pennsylvania were the scenes for a series of violent assaults, arsons, and murders, which were blamed on a group of Irish immigrants called the Molly Maguires. Between 1863 and 1867, no fewer than 57 mine foremen and supervisors were assassinated. One of them, who met his fate in 1863, is buried in the south segment of Laurel Hill East in Section 14. Now, during the Great Potato Famine of the 1840s and 50s, more than a million Irish emigrated to America, and a large number settled in the anthracite coal region of Pennsylvania looking for work. 
But they were routinely met with discrimination, both because of their heritage and their religion. Most were Catholic. As with earlier Irish immigrants who built the early railroad systems in America, see Biographical Bites from Ballad Number 21, Blood on the Tracks at Mile 59. These new immigrants were willing to do the most physically demanding work, but encountered help-wanted signs with a disclaimer, Irish need not apply, although it is doubtful that many of them could read the sign or the disclaimer. And when they were hired for dangerous mining jobs, most were forced to live in overcrowded company-owned housing, buy goods from company-owned stores, and visit company-owned doctors. In many cases, workers found themselves owing their employers at the end of each month. Now remember, this is about the same time as the nativist riots in Philadelphia, also known as the Bible riots. In May and again in July 1844, there were riots as a result of rising anti-Catholic sentiment at the growing population of Irish Catholic immigrants. The government brought in over a thousand militia. They confronted the nativist mobs and killed and wounded hundreds of anti-Catholic rioters. This episode the Bible riots will eventually get its own podcast. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, miners were drafted into fighting what they perceived to be a rich man's war, and they rebelled. They sent threatening notes called coffin notices to mine supervisors and scabs who planned to take their places while they were off fighting. The name Molly Maguire can be traced to 19th century Ireland. In the 1840s, an Irish widow named Molly Maguire led a protest against English landlords who tried to steal people's land. Her group was called the Anti-Landlord Agitators. They were known for getting into bare-knuckle fights with their landlords. After an Irishman roughed up his English landowner, he would shout, Take that from a son of Molly Maguire! And the name stuck to identify the group. In America, there were no unions at the time. There were no labor or mining laws to help protect the workers. And the work was extremely dangerous. It was not until 1864 that the Working Man's Benevolent Association was formed in Pennsylvania to help enforce appropriate and safer mining conditions. The WBA strictly forbade violence and opposed militancy and was ignored by many workers who felt the organization was too self-serving. The workmen themselves formed a group known as the Ancient Order of Hibernians, AOH. They sought only Irish and Sons of Irish as members. They sought to provide fairness for the Irish working class and were willing to punish those who mistreated workers. It is thought that the AOH served as a cover for the Molly Maguires. Other groups adopted names like the Buckshots, the White Boys, the Peepo Day Boys, and they began to take out their wrath on mine supervisors. They were reporting some of their more recalcitrant workers as draft dodgers. Historians still disagree as to whether the Molly Maguires in America ever did actually exist. And they agree upon three things. Number one, numerous murders were perpetrated in Schuylkill County between 1861 and 1875. Number two, the Philadelphia and Reading companies financed a private investigation into a reputed secret criminal society. 
And number three, as a result of that investigation, 20 men were executed for allegedly committing some of those murders. Let's look at one of these murders. 7 November 1863, Philadelphia Inquirer printed a story headlined, Bloody Doings in Carbon County. Paragraph 7 reported, Last night, a party of buckshots called at the house of Mr. G.K. Smith, a well-known coal operator at Yorktown. Mr. Smith and his family had retired for the night, but they knocked at his door, aroused him, and when he came to the door, he was fired upon by someone of the party and instantly killed. Mr. Smith was a loyal man and greatly respected in the neighborhood, and his only crime was that of being suspected by the ruffians of having given information on the whereabouts of drafted men. It is not probable that the murderers can be brought to justice as there is no means of identifying them. That initial story set up quite a ruckus. Ten days later, the Inquirer reported, We have some additional details of the circumstances attending the assassination of Mr. George K. Smith and desperate wounding of Mr. Ulrich. The man who first entered Mr. Smith's house, pretending that he had a letter for him, was a tall Irishman wearing his beard in the shape of a goatee. He had on a military coat. The man insisted on seeing Mr. Smith, but Mrs. Smith and Mr. Ulrich said Mr. Smith was too sick to get up and Mrs. Smith would hand him the letter. The man had his hand in his pocket, and in pulling it out, a pistol in his pocket exploded, the ball passing through the floor and the powder setting fire to his pantaloons. The man then caught Mr. Ulrich around the neck and tried to shoot him in the head, but Mr. Ulrich seized the man's hand that held the pistol and prevented him. Five shots, however, were fired all passing close to Mr. Ulrich's head, the powder burning his face. While this was going on, a crowd of the fellow's companions rushed into the house and beat Aldrich over the head and body with clubs and billies. During this cowardly assault upon a single man, one of the parties shot Mr. Ulrich through the thigh. Ulrich then broke loose from them, drew a revolver, and fired at his assailants. He is certain he shot one and thinks he hit two. One of the wounded was the man who first entered the house. As Mr. Ulrich fell exhausted in the hall of the house, Mr. Smith, aroused by the disturbance, came downstairs without taking time to dress, entered a room where the mob was, and attempted to speak to the ruffians. And while he was in the act of addressing them, a thug sneaked up behind him, placed the muzzle of a pistol to the back of his head, and shot him dead. A ball passed through Mrs. Smith's clothing and through the front door. The sister saved herself by hiding under the house. Another newspaper report the next day provided more details, quote, from the lips of Mrs. Smith. On the afternoon preceding the night of the murder, Mr. and Mrs. Smith drove home from Philadelphia in a carriage. Mr. Smith, suffering at the time from severe indisposition, owing to which he retired to his chamber immediately after tea. About nine o'clock, someone knocked at the door, and Mrs. Smith, answering the call, confronted the man who inquired for Mr. Smith. Mrs. Smith stated that he had retired and acquired his business. 
The man answered that he had a letter from Mr. Smith from Mach Chunk. Mrs. S. told him that she could hand it to Mr. S. when the man replied that he had expressed orders to deliver it to no one but Mr. Smith. Mrs. S. then said she would apprise her husband of the fact which she did. Mr. Smith came downstairs and received the letter from the man, and as he turned to the light to read it, the murderer drew a pistol and, placing it close to the back of the head of the victim, shot him dead. Mrs. Smith and a clerk of Mr. Smith's, that would be Mr. Ulrich, who was in the house at the same time, made their escape by a back door, the former receiving several balls through her dress and the latter a wound in the thigh. The clerk states that he killed one of the gang. The clerk was George Ulrich, whom Sarah Smith had asked to stay with them that night because she had a premonition that her husband was in danger. George K. Smith was 44 years old at the time of his assassination. He was interred at Laurel Hill South on 30 November 1863. After George's burial, his wife Sarah and daughter moved to Brooklyn. She received $5,000 from a life insurance policy that her husband had purchased. She apparently never married, and when she died at age 72 in 1909, she was buried with George at Laurel Hill East. The ancient order of Hibernians continued their assaults throughout the coal region for more than a decade until they were broken up by the Pinkerton Detective Agency in the 1870s, especially through the work of an Irish Catholic spy named James McParlin, who took the pseudonym James McKenna and worked his way deep into the organization. Through his work, several members of the organization were tried and found guilty of murder. Smith's shooter was later identified as Hugh Humpy Flynn, so-called because he suffered from a hunchback. On 21 June 1877, six men were hanged in the prison at Pottsville, the seat of Schuylkill County, and four at Carbon County's seat, March Chunk, which is now known as Jim Thorpe. Over the next two years, ten more members were hanged at March Chunk, Pottsville, Bloomsburg, which is the seat of Columbia County, and Sunbury, seat of Northumberland County. Several of the hanged men were pardoned posthumously a century after their deaths, when more information became available. The Molly Maguires themselves left virtually no evidence of their existence, let alone their aims and motivation, although most historians now agree that they really did exist. Arthur Conan Doyle used them as a plot point in his 1914 Sherlock Holmes novel, The Valley of Fear. And film director Martin Ritt made an historical drama about them in 1970, starring Sean Connery and Richard Harris. But everybody knows the name Molly Maguires, and nobody's really sure if they actually existed. They were so secretive that they virtually left no trace of their existence. From Wicked Philadelphia, Sin in the City of Brotherly Love by Thomas Keels. The Victorians called it Seduction. The Heberton Mercer Murder Case, 1843. Friday, February 10th, 1843, was a bitterly cold night in Philadelphia. 
Although little snow had fallen, the Delaware River had begun to freeze, and ice boats struggled to keep the busy port open for business. Massive merchant vessels crept along the icy channel, heading south to the Atlantic. Small steamboats chugged back and forth across the river, ferrying goods and passengers between Philadelphia and Camden. A few blocks west, the bell in the Tower of Independence Hall, which most Philadelphians still called the Old State House, struck five o'clock. At Fifth and Walnut, a young man hid in the shadows and watched one of the houses on the south side of Walnut. A carriage laden with luggage turned up a narrow alley in the middle of the block. Two men emerged from the house and hurried into the vehicle, which headed east. The young man hailed a cab. "'Follow that carriage!' he commanded the startled driver. "'Drive like the devil! Go to hell after it if it goes there!' It was dark when the two carriages reached the Market Street Wharf on the Delaware River, where a few pedestrians and a horse-drawn coal wagon waited to board the steamboat John Fitch for Camden. The first carriage clambered onto the ferry. The young man paid his cab and boarded the steamboat on foot, hiding behind the coal wagon, which had stopped across the deck from the carriage. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., the John Fitch lurched away from the dock, its side wheels churning as plumes of black smoke erupted from the twin funnels near its bow. The young man held his breath as the carriage door opened, and a gentleman in his mid-twenties emerged, wearing a tall beaver hat and a heavy overcoat. The young man hid behind the wagon as beaver hat strolled around, peering at the faces of his fellow passengers. The canal was icy and the horses grew restless as the steamboat bumped against the flows. The carriage driver climbed down from his box and stood next to one horse, calming it. Beaver Hat took the bridle of the other animal. Soon the lights of Camden came into view. The John Fitch shuddered as it glided into the Federal Street Wharf. Beaver Hat and the driver were preoccupied at the front of the carriage, soothing the jittery horses. Passengers gathered their possessions and pushed forward, preparing to debark. In the confusion, the young man emerged from behind the coal wagon. He strode across the deck to the carriage, thrust a pistol through the rear window curtain, and fired four shots blindly. Panicked by the noise, the horses reared and whinnied, while other passengers screamed and scurried for safety. Beaver Hat ran back and flung open the carriage door. Inside, his companion lay crumpled on the floor, groaning but barely conscious, as a pool of blood spread beneath him. The man shut the door and grabbed the shooter's arm, muttering, This is a pretty piece of business. Later, everyone recounted a different version of how the young man had behaved after the shooting. Some remembered him as deadly calm, surrendering his pistol without a struggle. Some said he declaimed dramatically, The deed is done. I give myself up to justice. Still others recalled him laughing maniacally and calling for a fiddle so that all could dance. Only one thing was certain. Singleton Mercer had just killed Malin Hutchinson Heberton, the alleged rapist of Mercer's 16-year-old sister, Sarah. The murder was the denouement of a scandal 
which had titillated Philadelphia for nearly a week. On the morning of February 6th, young Sarah Mercer had left her family residence in Southwark and disappeared for two days. Her father Thomas, a wealthy merchant and a leader in the Presbyterian Church, was deeply worried. Sarah was only 16 and very pretty, but also described as childlike and of rather weak intellect. Thomas Mercer's anxiety increased when rumors spread that Sarah had eloped with, or had been abducted by, 24-year-old Malin Hutchinson Heberton, the socially prominent son of the late physician John C. Heberton. Many Philadelphians considered Heberton to be the epitome of the wild young man known as a sport, who patronized the city's billiard halls, bowling alleys, and bordellos. The Spirit of the Times, a populist newspaper, described him as rather tall, extremely well-formed, remarkably full in the chest, always dressed in the extreme of the fashion, corseted, padded, etc., to a nicety, had dark hair, a brilliant and rakish eye, wore a mustache, and carried a gold-headed cane. The Spirit revealed that Heberton had spent most of his inheritance, and was considered a lady-killer. The public ledger, a penny paper popular with workers, disclosed that Heberton bore the character of a roué and boasted of his success with the women. On February 8th, Thomas Mercer had Heberton arrested and taken to the office of the local alderman. Heberton swore that he knew nothing of Sarah's whereabouts. When Thomas Mercer begged Heberton to restore his daughter's reputation with an offer of marriage, the sport refused. Heberton also declined Singleton Mercer's challenge to a duel, again citing their social inequality. Sarah, the child of an Irish immigrant tradesman, was Heberton's social inferior, regardless of her father's wealth. With no evidence and no confession, the alderman was obliged to release Heberton, despite the Mercer's indignation. That evening, the Mercer's worst fears were confirmed. Word reached them that Sarah was at a house of ill repute at Pine and Twelfth Streets, in a state of mental derangement. The girl was brought back to her home, where she revealed that Heberton had indeed stolen the most valuable and irreplaceable possession of a respectable young woman, her virginity. Singleton returned home early the next morning, exhausted after searching all night for his sister. Upon learning of Sarah's fate, the normally gentle youth went berserk and threatened to kill her. After being subdued, Singleton stormed out of the house, determined to hunt down his sister's seducer. He spent the next 36 hours searching the city's dives for Heberton, drinking heavily, showing off a loaded pistol, and behaving irrationally. When Heberton learned that Mercer was gunning for him, he sought out James C. Van Dyke, a lawyer friend. Heberton remained at Van Dyke's home on Walnut Street, opposite the State House yard, while the lawyer arranged to spirit him away to a friend's country estate outside Camden. Despite Van Dyke's attempts at secrecy, Singleton learned of his enemy's plans and followed him onto the Camden Ferry. What Heberton hoped would be a pleasant hunting trip in the Jersey wetlands turned into his appointment with death on Friday, February 10th, 
1843. After the panic died down aboard the John Fitch, Mercer was placed in the carriage driver's charge while Van Dyke tried to comfort his dying friend. Heberton was carried into the nearby Cakes Hotel, where he gave one last gasp and expired. Singleton Mercer was taken into custody by the Camden Sheriff. The following morning, an inquest was held at Cakes Hotel. Five doctors examined Heberton's body and determined that he had been killed by the first of Mercer's four shots, which tore through the victim's lungs before lodging in his heart. The inquest jury returned a verdict of willful murder against S. Mercer, who was conveyed to the jail at Woodbury, the Gloucester County seat. Camden County would not be incorporated until 1844. As news of the murder reached Philadelphia, journalists from the city's 12 newspapers descended upon Woodbury. They were joined by reporters from New York, Baltimore, and elsewhere, who transformed the remote village into a media circus. Well before the trial began, many reporters had condemned Heberton and exonerated Mercer. What a lesson to the seducer, huffed the public ledger. The North American noted that the sympathy of the community is with Mercer, since any father, any brother, any man who merits the name of man will confess that if human nature might in any case ask an excuse for the willful shedding of blood, this case must come within the rule. Many reporters cast the scandal as a modern-day morality play with a distinctly democratic slant. On the side of good, there were the Mercers, gray-haired Father Thomas, a hard-working Irish, but Protestant, immigrant, who had achieved the American dream, Eliza, his loyal and uncomplaining wife, his son Singleton, a bookkeeper at a cotton brokerage, and his precious daughter Sarah, a product of Sunday schools and ladies' academies. On the side of evil, there was Malin Hutchinson Heberton, that thrice-named slothful symbol of old Philadelphia's entitled aristocracy. Like Varney, the penny-dreadful vampire of the period, Heberton devoured innocents and destroyed the lives of decent, productive citizens like the Mercers. To enhance the melodrama, reporters exaggerated the socio-economic gap between the two families, even though the Mercers were probably wealthier than the Hebertons. On February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, Malin Hutchinson Heberton was buried. Nearly 2,000 people, many of them young women, watched the meager cortege of three carriages and a hearse proceed from the Heberton residence at Ninth and Arch, to the Central Presbyterian Church at 8th and Cherry. Mrs. Heberton walked the funeral route, supported by two friends. The trial of Singleton Mercer for the deliberate, intentional, and premeditated killing of Malin H. Heberton began on March 28, 1843, in the Woodbury Courthouse. The prosecution was led by George P. Mollison, Attorney General for the State of New Jersey, and Thomas D. Carpenter, Prosecuting Attorney for Gloucester County. Thanks to his father's fortune, Mercer was defended by a dream team of seven of Philadelphia's finest lawyers, including former New Jersey Governor Peter D. Vroom and Peter A. Brown, later solicitor for Philadelphia County. 
The defense did not dispute that Singleton Mercer had killed Heberton in cold blood. But, they argued, Mercer had been driven momentarily mad by the shock of having his beloved sister seduced by Heberton with no legal recourse. The temporary insanity defense was not new. In 1838, Peter A. Brown had employed it successfully to defend a Philadelphia confectioner named Wood who had killed his daughter after she married against his will. The defense also attempted to save Singleton by condemning his victim. And what shall I say of Malin Hutchinson Heberton, Brown asked rhetorically. I have no desire to wound the feelings of his family and highly respectable connections, but Heberton was an abandoned libertine in profession and in practice. He followed no business, his companions were libertines, and the only commerce he followed was seduction. On the third day of the trial, Thursday, March 30th, the defense produced its star witness, Sarah Mercer. Aware of the emotional impact that the young girl's testimony would produce, the prosecution objected strenuously. The defense explained that this testimony was necessary to show the provocation for the act of Singleton Mercer and its justification. The judge allowed the witness. Even before she uttered one word, Sarah Mercer created a sensation. Peter Brown left the courtroom to fetch her, but came back to announce that there would be a delay because Sarah was suffering convulsions. He left again and returned with Sarah leaning heavily on his arm, accompanied by her mother, older sister, and other female friends and relatives. Sarah entered the courtroom sobbing and moaning, dressed in deepest black. She needed several minutes to calm down. Sarah told the jury that she had met Heberton by accident in early January, shortly before her 16th birthday, while shopping with a friend on Chestnut Street. Passing by Heberton and another man, Sarah told her friend that she thought Heberton was Mr. Bastido, a Spanish gentleman she had met at a Christmas party. The two men overheard Sarah and seized on the opportunity to flirt with her and her friend. When Sarah went out on an errand the next evening, Mr. Bastido was waiting for her. After the two had met for several secret evening strolls, Heberton revealed his true identity. On their sixth rendezvous, Sarah stammered, she and Heberton stopped at a house in Elizabeth Street, a notorious red-light district. When Heberton said that it was a friend's house and that they should go in and warm up, Sarah refused, but Heberton insisted. A woman servant ushered them upstairs to a second-floor bedroom. When Sarah saw the bed, she screamed, but Heberton pulled out a pistol and ordered her to be silent. Sobbing, Sarah related how Heberton removed her bonnet and cloak and then carried her to the bed. While Heberton removed his coat, Sarah tried to escape. Heberton threw her back on the bed and loosened his suspenders and pantaloons. The courtroom was silent as Sarah whispered, He then violated my person. Before they left the house, Heberton told Sarah that he loved her and wanted to marry her and take her away to New Orleans. 
When Sarah refused to meet him again and insisted on telling her parents what he had done, Heberton changed his tone. He threatened to spread the word that Sarah herself had picked him up in the street and brought him to the house. For unknown reasons, intimidation, fear of exposure, or the desperate hope that Heberton would marry her and save her reputation, Sarah met Heberton several times over the next few weeks at Elizabeth Street and other assignation houses. Then, in early February, while Sarah was visiting her married older sister, her father's maid arrived with the news that Thomas Mercer had learned of her attachment to Heberton and wanted her home immediately. Sarah said that the servant told her that she didn't know what my father would do to me. Terrified, Sarah ran to the last place she had met Heberton, a house at Pine and Twelfth. When the landlady was unable to find Heberton for the hysterical girl after two days, she sent a message to the Mercers about their daughter. Sarah concluded her testimony by saying, During my walks with Mr. Heberton, he said to me that he liked me better than any young lady he had ever seen. Despite this ambiguous statement, her emotional performance, supported by a Greek chorus of sobbing female relatives in the front row, made a powerful impression. The trial continued for five more days. But after Sarah's testimony, there was little doubt as to its outcome. On Wednesday, April the 5th, the two sides offered their closing arguments. Prosecuting attorney Thomas Carpenter took three hours to present the state's case in the morning. After lunch, Governor Peter Vroom concluded for the defense in a bravura performance that lasted nearly seven hours. He, Heberton, took her in his arms, Vroom thundered, laid her down on that altar, and offered her up to the god of his lusts. On Thursday, April 6th, the judge gave detailed instructions to the jury for eight hours, from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. The jury retired. After only half an hour, they announced that they had reached a verdict. Spectators stampeded back from nearby taverns, leaving their dinners half-eaten. The entire courtroom held its breath as the foreman rose and announced the verdict. Not guilty. The courtroom exploded in an uproar of delight, despite cries of silence and order from the constable. Singleton and Thomas Mercer were nearly smothered by joyful supporters. When the verdict was announced outdoors, the cheering lasted for 15 minutes. Singleton Mercer was taken back to jail, not as a prisoner, but to protect him from the rambunctious mob. Journalists rushed to the waterfront, hiring rowboats and sloops to ferry them back to Philadelphia with their hot story. Newspapers across the country held Singleton Mercer as a protector of feminine virtue. The citizens of Louisville, Kentucky, announced plans to present him with a gold medal. More thoughtful commentators urged the passage of stricter laws to prosecute rapists, preventing future Mercer tragedies. Singleton appeared anxious to move on, opening his own cotton brokerage business on South Front Street. But the Mercer tragedy was about to take on a new and more lurid existence. George Lepard, a Philadelphia novelist and journalist, 
covered the Mercer trial for a penny paper called The Citizen Soldier. In the fall of 1844, Lepard began to publish a weekly serialized novel called The Quaker City, or The Monks of Monk Hall. The sprawling novel blended supernaturalism, gore, social satire, political protest, and mild pornography to create a grotesque portrait of a Philadelphia that was without all purity, within all rottenness, and dead men's bones. The fictional monk hall of the title was a labyrinthine structure in Southwark where the city's most respectable men by day assembled at night for unspeakable acts of debauchery, rape, and sadism. The main plot of the Quaker City was drawn directly from the Mercer-Heberton case, with Gustavus Lorimer standing in for Heberton, Burnwood Arlington for Singleton, and Mary Arlington for Sarah. In the novel, Gus Lorimer and Burnwood Arlington are friends who delight in ruining virtuous women. Burnwood gleefully assists Lorimer's plans to seduce an innocent girl at Monk Hall, only to discover too late that Lorimer's prey is his own sister, Mary. In the book's climax, Lorimer is trapped on a boat crossing the icy Delaware River on Christmas morning with Burnwood. The vengeful brother shoots and kills Lorimer, then hysterically calls for music so he can dance over the corpse. An epilogue shows Mary Arlington living with her brother far from civilization, still hopelessly and rather insanely in love with her dead despoiler. Despite mixed reviews, The Quaker City was an unparalleled popular success from its first installment. When the complete story was published in book form in May 1845, it sold over 60,000 copies in its first year, making it the best-selling book America had ever seen. Lepard grew wealthy and used his profits to found his own newspaper entitled, What Else? The Quaker City. Singleton Mercer's reaction to the novel is unknown. But when Lepard attempted to mount a dramatic version of the Quaker City at the Chestnut Street Theater in November 1844, Mercer expressed his displeasure in no uncertain terms. As a crowd watched, he defaced a playbill outside the theater and then requested 200 tickets for the purpose of a grand row. Philadelphia had been through a series of deadly anti-Catholic riots earlier that year, and its politicians dreaded an equally bloody theater riot. Upon the advice of the mayor, the theater manager postponed and then canceled the Quaker City. After that, Singleton Mercer vanished into obscurity for nearly a decade. In December 1852, an item appeared about an early Christmas morning brawl in an oyster cellar at 3rd and Chestnut Streets, during which Mercer was seriously injured. According to the newspaper, Mercer stated that he had been shot, but it was evident upon examination of his person that he had been struck upon the head by a stick and pretty extensively shot in the neck. In other words, he was stinking drunk. This Christmas brawl may have served as an epiphany for the drifting Mercer. In the summer of 1855, the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, Virginia, were devastated by a yellow fever epidemic which killed more than 10% of their combined populations. 
Remembering their own struggles with yellow fever, Philadelphians assisted the plague-ridden cities by dispatching money, food, and volunteer doctors and nurses. Mercer, then 35, volunteered as a nurse on August 22nd, insisting that it was a duty which man owed to his fellow man to assist in time of pestilence. He was sent to Portsmouth, where he promptly contracted yellow fever himself. The hapless Mercer died on September 9th, less than three weeks after his arrival. The Richmond Daily Dispatch described Mercer as a man of generous impulses whose life is another sacrifice to humanity. Mercer was interred in a temporary grave, along with ten other doctors, nurses, and druggists from Philadelphia who died from the fever. They remained there for over three years while their native city raised funds to erect a fitting memorial. In early 1859, the eleven bodies were disinterred and shipped back to Philadelphia. On January 18th, the remains of Singleton Mercer and the other male yellow fever victims were placed in an underground vault at Laurel Hill Cemetery East. With Victorian propriety, the two female victims were buried separately. Above the vault rose a 25-foot-tall marble column atop a square base engraved with scenes of charity and sacrifice. Singleton Mercer still lies beneath the Yellow Fever Monument at the northern edge of Laurel Hill Cemetery, overlooking the Schuylkill River. South of his memorial, a smaller monument marks the graves of Mallon Hutchinson Heberton and his parents. Their remains were relocated to Laurel Hill East when the Central Presbyterian Church sold its Cherry Street Churchyard in 1848. Today, only a short walk separates the final resting places of two young men whose lives were disrupted forever aboard the Camden Ferry on an icy night in 1843. And what of Sarah Mercer, the young woman whose innocent confusion of a stranger for a family friend triggered this avalanche of rape, murder, and despair? She survived her ordeal. On July 6, 1847, Sarah married a Philadelphia writer by the name of Henry Milnor Clapp. Philadelphia newspapers had a field day resurrecting the earlier scandal. Perhaps because of this, the marriage didn't last long. After divorcing Clapp, Sarah married a New York physician named J.B. McCauley. She died on April 25, 1860, at the age of 40. Rather than being laid to rest with her husband, she was buried in the Mercer family lot in the 4th Presbyterian Church burial ground at 12th and Lombard Streets. At the time, she was known as Sally McCauley. Sarah remained at 12th and Lombard until 1886 when the burial ground was sold. She and four other members of her family were then transferred to the family lot of Sarah's married sister in Laurel Hill Cemetery West. The contents of Sarah's coffin and those of three other relatives had turned to dust. Only the corpse of her father, Thomas Mercer, who died in 1848, remained intact. According to the Inquirer, the corpse looked natural except that it had become slightly yellow, 
The hair was on the head and in good condition. The body, however, was as hard as stone, and no impression could be made upon it. The weight of the body was about 1,000 pounds. It took six strong men to remove Thomas Mercer's coffin from the ground. On this bizarre note ends the saga of Malin Hutchinson Heberton, his murderer, Singleton Mercer, Singleton's wrong sister, Sarah, and the rest of the unhappy Mercer clan. This is Thomas Keels for All Bones Considered. Okay, here is a cold-blooded murder from 1897. The first story is in the December 4th edition of The Inquirer. Headline, Coolly Shot Down on the Highway. Superintendent Haas of the S.S. White Dental Company's works the victim. Alexis Herkoff's crime He had been discharged and vented his crazy wrath upon the wrong man. George E. Haas, H-A-A-S, Assistant Superintendent of the S.S. White Dental Company's works at Frankfurt, whose name among hundreds of workmen is synonymous with fairness and kindly consideration, was shot down on the street at noon yesterday by a discharged employee Alexis Herkoff, H-U-R-K-O-F-F. The two shots fired by this Russian mechanic will, in all probability, result in a lingering death. But even if not, the victim will be made a helpless cripple. Mr. Haas left the office of the works on Takawana Street, below Orthodox, as soon as the noon whistle blew. Just as he was leaving, he was joined by Miss Rena Baines, the typewriter, and Miss Ella Campbell, the office assistant. The trio walked up Orthodox Street in high spirits, laughing at the many falls of pedestrians on the ice-covered pavements. As they passed a small stand, which is used by a peanut vendor to display his wares on Orthodox Street, just above Washington Avenue, Not one of the three noticed the crouching figure of a man. The street was crowded with millhands leaving for dinner, and at the very corner where the shooting took place there were congregated a number of young men and boys. As the three passed by, Herkoff arose from his cramped position and followed them. Suddenly, two shots were fired in quick succession, and Haas fell on his face, the blood coming in great spurts from two wounds in his back. Miss Baines and Miss Campbell were so overcome with the horror of the thing that they stood helpless, not able even to render any assistance to the man as he lay in a pool of blood, moaning and crying like a child. But this was only for a moment. Miss Baines, the first to regain her presence of mind, pluckily ran after her cough, who, carrying the revolver in his hand, was walking quickly away. "'Catch him! Stop him!' the girl cried. "'He's murdered Mr. Haas!' Herkoff was going up Orthodox Street on a quick run. Then men, boys, and even girls started after him. Herkoff turned off Orthodox Street to hedge, 
and then ran along Oxford Street, which leads to Frankfurt Avenue. A number of the pursuers, seeing that the man was endeavoring to join the crowd on the main street so as to escape, ran up Orthodox Street and down Frankfurt Avenue, just reaching Sellers Street as the Russian was seen running up the latter thoroughfare. So when Herkov reached the avenue, it was only to run into a group of panting men and boys who surrounded him and called for a policeman. The man did not offer any resistance. In the meantime, the wounded superintendent, the bullets rendering a complete paralysis of the body from the waist down, had been tenderly picked up and laid out on an improvised bed in Daunton's barber shop. Messengers were sent out after physicians, with the result that in a few minutes, doctors Boyer, Allen, and Judd were on the scene. Examination showed that one bullet had grazed the spine and had passed very close to the kidneys. The other wound was between the shoulder blades. Mrs. Haas, by this time, had heard of the shooting and ran down to the little barber shop. The scene between the man and wife was most affecting. He, with a rare retention of his faculties, could speak rationally about the affair, saying that he never knew Herkoff, and that he had not been discharged by him, but by the foreman of the department. On the advice of the doctors, Haas was taken to the Episcopal Hospital in the patrol wagon, the faithful wife and her two sons insisting upon accompanying him. The physicians at the hospital worked hard for hours to save the life of the superintendent. The x-rays finally used to locate the bullets. Remember, this is 1897. Finally, the missile that had lodged between the shoulders was extracted, but it was feared that further operation might endanger the patient's chance of recovery. At a late hour last night, Haas's condition was described as very critical. Herkoff, who had locked up at the Frankfurt Station House, refused to answer any questions except one as to his name. A young girl who speaks Russian fluently and who lives at Herkoff's boarding house on Bermuda Street was allowed by Lieutenant Hansen to visit the prisoner. She told the lieutenant that Herkoff had acknowledged that he shot the superintendent because he'd been thrown out of work. He'd do it again if he was released. Herkov worked for two years in the forcep department at the factory, but was discharged owing to dullness of business last May. Next day, December 6th, 1897. Herkov's threat to kill Mr. Haas. It was fulfilled when his victim passed away last night. Said to be a nihilist, the assassin had been told that he would kill a man, indifferent about his fate. Fighting bravely to the last with the little strength that was left him, George E. Haas, the assistant superintendent of the S.S. White Dental Works at Frankfurt, died early last evening at the Episcopal Hospital, giving up his life to satisfy the morbid desire of a discharged employee, Alexis Herkoff. The faithful wife was at the bedside, as she had been all day, when her husband passed away, unconsciousness sparing him to some of her bitter weeping. The murder of Mr. Haas, cruel and wanton as it was, 
will arouse not only over Frankfurt, where the dead man was well known and loved, but over the city and country, a feeling of the strongest nature against the workmen of Herkoff's stamp, men using the savage means of nihilistic revenge on their innocent superiors. Alexis Herkoff shot Superintendent Haas because he thought fate directed him to do it. This new phase of Friday's event, which has so stirred up feeling in Frankfurt, was brought out yesterday by a statement made to an Enquirer reporter by Elias Lamberg, the proprietor of a large house furnishing store at 4446 Frankfurt Avenue. Herkoff, Mr. Lamberg said, has been in the habit of coming in my store for years, and during that time I've been able to learn something of his past. Four years ago he came to Frankfurt and obtained employment, and until last May when he was laid off by the dental company he had been steadily at work. His discharge seemed to prey on his mind, and he became gloomy and downcast. In his broken, mixed jargon, he started about two weeks ago to tell me over and over his troubles. I didn't pay much attention to him, thinking that he was simply a sorehead, until one day last week he startled me by saying, I'm going to kill Mr. Haas because he won't let me go back to my old job. Herkoff said this in such a serious way that I believed him, and I did what I thought was best under the circumstances. I notified the police of the district. But I was only laughed at for my pains by the police, who declared that a man who would threaten the life of another was insane. I could not see why an insane man should not be taken care of, but the police seemed to know best. After that, Herkoff confided in me that he was a nihilist and did not believe in God or man, and he would do his share to relieve the, quote, oppression of the laboring man. He also said to me that six years ago in Russia, an old woman had told him his fortune, and one of the things she prophesied was that he would kill a man when he came to America. The prisoner was given a hearing before Magistrate Eisenbraun at the Frankfurt Police Station yesterday morning and was committed to prison to await the result of Mr. Haas' injury. Testimony was given by a number of witnesses, including Miss Ella Campbell and Miss Rena Baines, who were walking with Haas when he was shot. Have you anything to say for yourself? asked Magistrate Eisenbraun of the prisoner. You want to know too much, answered Herkoff with a scowl. You were committed to prison, announced the magistrate. I don't care what you do with me, was the prisoner's only response. Mr. Haas's condition at the Episcopal Hospital, where he was taken after the shooting, remained all day very critical. The physician said that he had a bare chance of life, but he might with more probability die at any hour. Dr. Carncross said that by the use of the x-rays, one of the bullets had been located and found to be embedded in the spinal column above the hips. With much difficulty, the projectile was extracted, but the other bullet, which is supposed to have lodged in the abdominal cavity, could not be found. Early in the evening, Mr. Haas relapsed into unconsciousness, and it was seen that the ebb of life was near the end. As the hours passed, he sank, and exactly at 8.15 p.m., he died. 
The coroner has now assumed charge of the case. Herkoff was tried and found guilty on February 26th, 1898. And on March 5th, he was sentenced to be hanged, but no date was set for the execution. The next time we encounter him in the newspaper is June 23rd, 1898. Also from the Inquirer, headline, Convict Hanged in Prison Cell. The slayer of Georgie Haas took his own life. Cheated the gallows. Alexis Herkoff threw watchers off their guard and then killed himself. Alexis Herkoff, the convicted murderer of George E. Haas, who is superintendent of the SS White Dental Company's works, committed suicide yesterday morning by hanging himself in his cell at Moya Mensing Prison. The man used a towel which he had converted into a rope. He was discovered dead about half past nine by keeper John Henry. The wretched fellow had never given the slightest intimation that he had intended to kill himself and therefore cheat the gallows. For if the prison officials had known it, he would have been more closely watched. The man had probably been contemplating the act for some time, but it was evidently not until yesterday morning that he finally decided to end his miserable career. He hanged himself while he was supposed to be eating his breakfast, and while the keeper's attention was engaged in looking after the other prisoners in his charge. Herkoff did not touch the food which had been handed to him in his cell. Though he acted rather violently at times, he did not give the prison officials very much trouble, and it was the first time that he did not eat what food was taken to him. Herkoff was one of the best-behaved prisoners in the jail, until the day he was placed in the cell which was formerly occupied by H.H. H. Holmes, the multi-murderer. Herkoff was a changed man in a single day, and the keepers did not know what to make of him. First of all, he tore off all his clothes, and then he battered out the iron grating fastened to the window of the cell. He continued acting this way, and the keepers removed him to a cell on the first floor of the prison. There was a decided change in the prisoner almost immediately, but every now and then he acted very sullen. Frequently at his request, one of the priests of the Church of the Annunciation, a short distance away, was called to the prison. When the clergyman reached there, Herkoff would refuse to listen to him. Herkoff's crime was a most cowardly one. He shot Haas while the latter was returning home for dinner one day with two young women employed at the place. Herkoff had formerly worked there, but was discharged, and he wrongfully blamed Haas for his dismissal. He told a friend that he would kill Haas if he was not reinstated, and not getting his job back, he bought a pistol and vented his wrath. The shooting took place on Orthodox Street, Frankfurt, and Haas died a day or so later. The murderer fired two shots, both of which lodged in the victim's body. When Herkoff was tried, he admitted that he was an anarchist, a socialist, and a nihilist. According to his theory, he thought he did right in killing Haas when the latter refused him work. He asserted that it was revealed to him in a vision that he was to kill his victim. The suicide was reported to Chief Deputy Coroner Dugan, 
and he and Deputy Neff visited the jail later in the day. Herkoff was about 35 years old. His body was removed to the morgue, and if it is not claimed, it will be turned over to one of the colleges for scientific purposes. An inquest will be held in the case today. It seems that the man had no friends in this country. George E. Haas was laid to rest at Laurel Hill West in the Washington section, lot 96. His wife Emily outlived him by 28 years, and she too is buried in the Laurel Hill West plot. Okay, let's take a break for a couple of minutes. Let me tell you what's going on at Laurel Hill in December. Winter is about here, and the cemetery gates are now closing at 5 p.m. rather than 7 p.m. But there is still a lot to educate and entertain you at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. There's an after-hours program, 6.30 on Tuesday, December 5th, free discussion at Laurel Hill West called Morphine and Milkshakes, a hospice care conversation. Even though it is free, we ask you to RSVP so we can know how many people to expect for that. Saturday, December 9th at 10 a.m., an introductory hot spots and storied plots tour at Laurel Hill East from 10 a.m. until noon. Mike Lewandowski is going to host that one. You might know Mike from the beer tour that he gives every year, Brewers at Laurel Hill. There's an online death cafe on Tuesday, December 12th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Again, no admission fee, but you need to sign up so you can get the link. Saturday, December 16th, 1 to 3 p.m., tour that I've been looking forward to since I first heard about it being put together. It's called A Merry Laurel Hill Christmas and will be led by Russ Dodge. This one may sell out, so you better get your tickets early on that. There is another Hot Spots tour at Laurel Hill East on Friday, December 22nd, just three days before Christmas. Where would you rather be three days before Christmas than at the historic cemetery? That's from 10 a.m. until noon. And the tour guide for that is Laura Lewis. Laura always puts on a great show. The next day, Saturday, December 23rd at Laurel Hill West, from 10 a.m. until 11.30. Sacred Spaces and Storied Places at Laurel Hill West. It's similar to the Hot Spots and Storied Plots. Some great stories. Sarah Hamill is the guide on this. You're going to hear from Sarah in the second half of the podcast today. And if that doesn't convince you to go see her give a tour, I don't know what will. She gives terrific tours. So lots of stuff coming up in December before Christmas. Now, don't forget, it is a gift-giving time of year. I have three suggestions for you. First of all, purchase something from our gift shop. You can do it online. Number two, get somebody a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill for as little as $25 each, and then they can take advantage of gift shop discounts tour discounts, members-only gatherings, and a lot more. Go to laurelhillphl slash support slash membership. And if you're really looking for a way to surprise special people, you could arrange a private tour for friends and family at Laurel Hill East or Laurel Hill West. You choose the day, 
you choose the time. You could even request a specific tour guide if you like. Hint, hint. For more information, go to laurelhillphl.com slash plan-your-visit-tours. Okay, let's get back to some more murders. The next story is a script that was written for me. I found it while searching the web. It's called The McCurdy Mystery, The Long-Forgotten Story of Archibald, and it's written by Khalif Rivers. He posted it online on 8 March 2021. I contacted Khalif after I first read it and befriended him. I asked if he would like to see the place where Archibald McCurdy was buried at Laurel Hill West, and I gave him a tour there. Khalif is also a photographer and I took him to Laurel Hill East and showed him around there and thoroughly immersed him in the history and some of the people at both cemeteries. This is what Khalif wrote. Wool whipcord pants, sealskin sacks, chiffon broadcloth, silk habitat and taffeta, the finest fabrics of the late 19th and early 20th centuries resided within the confines of the multi-story McCurdy Brothers Department Store. Situated at the corner of Front Street and Susquehanna Avenue in Kensington, McCurdy's was known for drawing crowds. Their fall and spring showcases attracted throngs of shoppers eager to lay eyes on the season's offerings. Though not as sprawling and ornate as the John Wanamaker or Gimble Brothers stores in Center City, McCurdy's was a neighborhood staple that enjoyed a level of success most shop owners would envy. Life was seemingly good for the McCurdy family, until it wasn't. On 20 February 1903, shortly before midnight, two plainclothes officers noticed the unlocked rear door of McCurdy's while on foot patrol. Having known the store's night watchman on a first-name basis, they threw the door open and shouted his name into the void. Archie! Hey, Archie! Darkness and echoes were expected at such a late hour, but a non-response from the watchman concerned the officers enough to make them step inside. Upon reaching the cashier's desk, which was situated over the cellar stairs in the center of the store, they made a grim discovery. A man's lifeless body was slouched over, head planted on the cellar floor, where blood poured from a gunshot wound inflicted behind his left ear. Although there were no signs of forced entry of the premises, this was certainly no suicide. No gun was found at the scene and the store's cash register had been pried open and relieved of its change box. Night watchman Archibald McCurdy had been shot and killed in an apparent robbery. Archibald, known as Archie, immigrated to Philadelphia from Ireland as a teenager. One of 11 children, he had been employed by his brothers, store owners James and Samuel McCurdy. Only 47 at the time of his death, he was known as a quiet man who never drank, he made few friends, he'd never been married. He lived with his father a short walk away on the 2000 block of Susquehanna Avenue. 
Archie prided himself on its physical strength so much that he refused to carry a weapon for his job duties. He had no known enemies or lifestyle habits that would have explicitly made him the target of a murder. Detectives' initial conjecture was that Archie heard the men rustling about downstairs and was shot when he went to apprehend them. However, information garnered from the crime scene suggested that Archie had been ambushed just as he was about to exit the cellar. He never received an opportunity to face his killers because they most likely entered the store sometime before closing and secreted themselves. The last person to see Archie alive was the closing cashier who locked up the register for the night before heading home. The store was left virtually untouched aside from that register. It had been forced open with a hand tool and roughly $50 in coins were missing. Due to a lack of eyewitnesses, detectives relied on this key piece of circumstantial evidence to jumpstart their investigation. Professional thieves were not known to resort to such drastic efforts to make off with only $50 in change. A store like McCurdy's was full of valuable inventory. Its textiles and garments would have made for a formidable heist. Kensington had been plagued by a string of petty robberies as of late, and police were certain that this was the sloppy work of yet another amateur. Petty thieves were known to circulate money in places like the Tenderloin District, an area rife with opium dens, bars, gambling halls, minstrel shows, penny peep shows, and various other vices and forms of cheap entertainment. Almost by default, it became one of the first areas canvassed by detectives. Search efforts were also concentrated in the blocks surrounding McCurdy's and the rest of the Front Street Commercial Corridor. The area was notoriously seedy and home to a number of local street gangs and small-time crooks. Archie was interred in the McCurdy family plot in the Moreland section of Laurel Hill West, a plot that eventually held 15 members of the McCurdy family. The police's fervent desire to bring Archie's killers to justice consequently opened the door to questionable investigation tactics. In addition to their haphazard sweeps of Tenderloin and Kensington, police also enlisted the help of merchants and eager tipsters. Shopkeepers were ordered to report any customers in possession of unusually large quantities of coins. One tip led to the detainment of a man previously convicted of robbery and assault. Archie was rumored to have contributed to a past arrest of the man, which potentially would have triggered him to seek revenge. Many of those arrested and detained were kept under surveillance even after their release. A trolley motorman claimed to have seen three black men near the store the night of the murder. His tip led to sweeps of lodging houses frequented by black dwellers on Lombard Street, and a black man and boy were subsequently arrested and questioned. Descriptions of the alleged black suspects were also telegraphed to police departments as far north as New York City and south as Baltimore. Within a week of the murder, police managed to detain and question some 18 people. Within two weeks, police superintendent Harry Quirk claimed that not only had the killers been found, but that the case 
was also solved. For now their desperation was quelled. The break they so desperately sought came from Kensington resident John Sundermeyer, one of the many persons of interest rounded up in the aftermath of the murder. He claimed the killer confessed to him following a drunken orgy that took place in a home on Waterloo Street near Lehigh Avenue. According to Sundermeyer, Harry Sifton was the man who fired the fatal shot. Sifton's alleged accomplice was Mike Heffron, colloquially known as Big Mike. Sifton and Big Mike were no strangers to the police. They were well-known troublemakers and career criminals who belonged to a Kensington street gang known as the Battle of Waterloo. In fact, Big Mike had been arrested just 24 hours after Archie's murder. He was released shortly after that, but kept under close surveillance. With witnesses and suspects in custody, the date for the first court hearing was set. The rumor mill surrounding the case drove anticipation for the hearing so high that a large crowd gathered outside the court with hopes of receiving a sensational murder story. Inside, the judge cleared the usual docket of disorderly drunks so quickly they barely had time to process their luck. When the moment of truth finally arrived, John Sundermeyer was called to the stand. His account went as such. After a night of beer, whiskey, and women, an intoxicated and guilt-racked Harry Sifton broke down and confessed to shooting Archie. I can't get that face out of my sight, and I can see him wherever I go, said Sifton through a fit of tears. Sundermeyer prodded some more. Sifton continued. He allegedly confirmed that he was the gunman and began to lay out the sequence of events that transpired on February 20th. Early that afternoon, he and Big Mike purchased guns from the nearby W.A. Strange Hardware Store. After obtaining the weapons, they walked into McCurdy's and hid in the cellar until the night watchman was alone. Sifton was said to have once held menial employment at McCurdy's and possessed knowledge of the store's routines. When Archie completed his cellar inspection, Sifton emerged from the shadows and shot him from behind at close range. He and Big Mike stole $52 in coins from the cash register and fled through the store's rear door. They tossed their guns into a sewer inlet before running north up Front Street. Sundermeyer claimed to have spoken to Sifton a few days after his confession. Both parties now sober, he asked again about Archie. Sundermeyer said that Sifton promptly denied ever having confessed to anything. Now, while certainly a strong tale outside a court of law, Sundermeyer's account was hearsay at best. It was not nearly enough to incriminate either man. Attorney John McLean, who represented Sifton and Big Mike, immediately took to the task of scrutinizing the testimony. McLean first asked for the approximate time that the meeting in the house took place, which Sundermeyer was unable to provide. Next, McLean got Sundermeyer to reiterate that he was intoxicated during the entire ordeal. 
Sundermeyer then admitted that he did not immediately report the confession to the police, but instead asked a friend for advice on what he should do. He only came forth with the confession after he saw one of the women present in the house with them that night speaking to a detective. McLean dismissed the testimony as a, quote, second-hand confession of a drunken man, end quote. The prosecution's inability to procure corroborating evidence slowly eroded the case. The murder weapon had yet to be found, even after police ordered the dredging of every sewer inlet around McCurdy's. Shopkeeper W.A. Strange could not confirm whether the men had ever entered his store to purchase firearms. The missing cash register box was reportedly found at what used to be the intersection of Bodine Street and Susquehanna Avenue. But the killers were said to have fled up Front Street. None of the findings supported Sundermeyer's story. With each passing day, the case continued to flounder, and the resolve of the prosecution waned. Two detectives even admitted in private that they believed the case was on the verge of collapse. And despite the weak evidence, prosecutors managed to keep Sifton and Big Mike detained for several more weeks. Police continued to follow up on tips and brought in a few supposed witnesses, none of whom could positively identify the men and link them to the crime scene. In April, a milkman discovered the alleged murder weapon under a platform at the Reading Railroad Milk Depot near Bodine and Norris Streets. While stooping down to retrieve a dropped pencil, he spotted the rusted revolver under the rail platform. Unfortunately, it would still not be enough to tie the Battle of Waterloo members to Archie McCurdy's murder. After dominating headlines for nearly three months, the plug was inevitably pulled on the case. All the commotion, anticipation, and hype was suddenly non-existent. Left in its wake was a cold case and a disappointed family forced to deal with the harsh reality that justice and closure would never come their way. In July 1903, the McCurdy Brothers store moved two blocks north to the corner of Front and York Streets. Six years later, they weathered another massive blow in the form of a large fire that ripped through the building's topped floor. The inferno obliterated everything in its immediate path, and the water required to extinguish it flooded the rest of the building. $100,000 worth of damage was inflicted upon the store. That's approximately $3 million in contemporary money. Now involuntarily well-versed in picking up the pieces after tragedy, the McCurdy family immediately commenced repairs to their store, and business eventually resumed. As for murder suspects, Harry Sifton and Big Mike, well, they both stayed true to their troublemaking roots. Big Mike was arrested in July 1904 for running a counterfeit coin operation from his Kensington residence. He lodged with a woman named Vernie Curran and her 9- and 15-year-old daughters. Mike used the fake coins to compensate Vernie for his lodging. She and her daughters spent them at local merchants who eventually became aware of the proliferation of bogus coins circulating their shops. Vernie and her daughters were arrested when the 15-year-old attempted to spend a fake half-dollar coin. 
they were all charged with willfully and maliciously passing counterfeit coins, a distinction that earned them a visit from the Secret Service. Officers searched the home and recovered an apparatus and molds to make fake coins. Vernie implicated Big Mike, who'd already skipped town upon learning of the ladies' arrests. A warrant was issued for his arrest, and he was captured three weeks later in Edgemore, Delaware. In May 1903, only two months removed from the thick of the McCurdy case, Sifton was sentenced to a year in Holmesburg prison for drunkenly assaulting his parents. Never one to be outdone, he would mastermind a successful escape from the facility. His prison-breaking wizardry was executed with the help of a makeshift saw created from a butcher's knife and several bars of soap. After cutting out the dirty iron grate of a washroom window, he used it to blacken soap, which was then fashioned into imitation grating. He and eight other inmates squeezed through the 20-inch window and dropped 30 feet below to their freedom. Oddly enough, Sifton had only a few months left to serve at the time of his escape. Some of the other escapees had only a day or two to serve on their sentences. In 1908, Sifton was arrested and jailed again for stealing a gas meter from a residence. James McCarty passed away on 25 April 1929 at the age of 75. His front and York store would host several tenants in the following decades. The structure still stood at the corner until 2000 when a tract of land bound by Front, York, Howard, and Cumberland Streets was acquired by the school district of Philadelphia via eminent domain. All the remaining properties were raised to make way for Hunter Elementary School. That was a terrifically written article. I want to thank Khalif Rivers for allowing me to share his write-up, which is on his website, Khalif Rivers, that's K-H-A-L-I-F-R-I-V-E-R-S dot medium dot com, the McCurdy mystery. I wish he would write some more. He's also an excellent photographer. Check out the photographic work he does, and if you need some photography done, if you need some you know, headshots or something in the next uh, next several months, consider using Khalif. And I'm still trying to talk him into being a guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West because he has such a great interest in history, especially people in his neighborhood. He discovered this when he discovered the store on the corner, which is very close to where he was living back in 2021. The Ella Jarden story takes place in 1902. And at the start of our story, Ella is living in a very nice house in Philadelphia with her two daughters. We have Madeline, age 10, and Eloise, age 7. She has just hired a new butler, a man named William Lane. And after just a few months of employment, William decides he's going to steal from Ella, and he reportedly steals $70. Then he decides he needs to kill her to cover up his crime. He goes to the third floor of the house where Ella is and shoots her. The seven-year-old daughter Eloise is playing in the room with her mother, so he shoots her as well. 
Then he goes outside and he calls in the 10-year-old daughter, Madeline, who was roller skating in front of the house. He told her that her mother wanted to see her. He followed her upstairs, and once she stepped into the room where her mother lay, he shot and killed Madeline, too. Someone must have heard those original shots that were fired because by the time William is coming back downstairs, the police are knocking at the door. Since shots were heard, they want to talk to Ella and find out what's going on. The butler shows them into the parlor, says he's going to go get her, and then he runs out the back door. By the time the police realize that William's not coming back, some time has elapsed and they head out into the house. They leave the parlor, they head out into the house, and they encounter the seven-year-old Eloise. She's shot fatally, but she has not yet died, and she manages to get to the police to tell them that her mother and sister had been shot by the butler. After a four-hour pursuit, William is captured in Camden, New Jersey. Meanwhile, Ella and 10-year-old daughter Madeline died right on the scene, and heroic 7-year-old Eloise dies just a day or so later. So by the time William the butler is in custody, we have three murders. He admits he did it, and he would only say that they deserved to die. He gave no other reason. The trial lasts just one and a half hours, and he was hanged just two months later. So almost before you had time to realize what was happening, it was over. Justice was swift. But, but was it justice? Was that the whole story? Was it really the butler that did this all on his own? Because the story unfolds and takes a very strange twist. While we know this woman as Ella Jarden, she had been living for 18 years as Mrs. Charles Furbush. Charles was a local businessman, a very wealthy man who happened to be married, but he had met Ella years before when she was teaching Sunday school and fell for her. His wife did find out, and Charles paid her a very handsome sum to turn a blind eye to the fact that he gave Ella a lavish home and a very comfortable lifestyle. But lately the neighbors reported there had been trouble in this arrangement. A third woman had come into the mix and neighbors report that there were stormy scenes between Ella and Charles when she found out about this new woman. So then we have the murders, and you have to wonder, was William the butler doing this all on his own? Or was Charles behind the scenes tying up some loose ends? I hate to think that loose ends would include a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old, but who knows? The end result is, there is Ella and the girls are killed. Charles is free to divorce his first wife and marry this third woman, Sarah, in 1904. He dies of heart troubles in 1905. In Laurel Hill West, they are buried just a few feet apart with Charles' big headstone on one side and Ella's more modest headstone just a short space away. This is a story that comes straight out of the newspaper. I'm just going to read it as is. It's from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Tuesday, August 29th, 1917. Father kills child and self with gas. 
Neighbors alarmed by continued quiet break into home and find bodies. Man who mourned death of wife six months ago and daughter seen alive Saturday. Fred Chadwick, 174 Haywood Street, after putting his nine-year-old daughter Ida to bed and locking and barring the doors and windows of the house late Saturday night, turned on the gas. The bodies of father and daughter were found by neighbors yesterday morning. That would be Monday. Chadwick was last seen alive on Saturday evening by his neighbors as he returned from shopping. He was accompanied by his little daughter, who lived with him. Both of them were laden with a week's supply of groceries, and he seemed in good spirits. On Sunday, it was noticed the house was closed all day, but it was thought that Chadwick and his daughter had gone visiting. Monday morning, no signs of life having been manifested in the house, and Chadwick not having been seen, the neighbors became alarmed and made an investigation. The odor of gas was detected through the keyhole of the front door. The door forced open, and the body of Chadwick and that of his daughter were found in bed on the second floor. Both were in their nightclothes, as though they had calmly retired but the cracks of the windows and doors had been stuffed with old clothes and sheets, and the front door had been reinforced from the inside with planking. According to statements of neighbors who were well acquainted with Chadwick, he would become melancholy at times and remain in that condition for long periods. His wife died about six months ago. He and his daughter since lived alone in the house, which Chadwick had recently repaired and refurnished. It was said Chadwick, several days ago, stated he was very lonely and desired to be with his wife. This was the only intimation he gave of intending suicide. He was 44 years old and was employed as a weaver. Fred's death certificate, the cause of death, as follows. Asphyxia by ill gas, that's illuminating gas, suicide while temporarily deranged. Ida Chadwick's death certificate. Asphyxia by ill gas at the hands of her father while temporarily deranged. Frederick Chadwick and his daughter Ida are buried at Laurel Hill East in Section X, Lot 463 the south part. This is a death that I found while sifting through the Philadelphia Inquirer for something else. I don't even remember what it was. I'm not going to read you the story. I actually wrote a little biography because I found this to be sort of interesting. Charles Morgan Knight, 1909 1937. In October 1937, Charles Morgan Knight, who usually went as C. Morgan Knight, was an investment broker, a socialite, and an amateur yachtsman who lived in Chestnut Hill and worked in Center City. He had married Mary Beverly Cox of Massachusetts in 1931, and they had two children, Giles, two and a half, and Mary Beverly, seven months. Knight came from old Philadelphia families. His father's father, 
Colonel Charles Carroll Knight, 1829-1906, Laurel Hill West Woodlawn section, lot 58, was born in Northern Liberties. This was before Northern Liberties was part of Philadelphia, which happened with the consolidation in 1854. In 1849, during the California Gold Rush, at age 20, he sailed from Philadelphia around Cape Horn to San Francisco. Three years later, he returned to Philadelphia and joined his father's iron business at 2nd and Vine Streets. In 1857, he volunteered as a member of the Artillery Corps of the Washington Grays. And when war broke out in 1861, he served in the 17th Regiment of Pennsylvania Volunteers in a 90-day enlistment. When the 119th Regiment Pennsylvania Infantry was organized in August 1862, Knight was commissioned major. On 13 December 1862, he was wounded by shrapnel at Fredericksburg and was discharged for disability on 4th of August 1863, returning to Philadelphia. He was a member of the Union League and Meade Post GAR, among other veterans' organizations. On 5 January 1871, Charles C. Knight married Sarah Jane Sally Schenck, 1836-1909, daughter of Dr. Joseph Howard Schenck, 1811-1874, and Catherine Howard Schenck, 1812-1904. They're both buried at Laurel Hill East, Section K, Plot 101 and 102. Dr. Joseph Schenck was one of the great patent medicine magnates of the 19th century. He had offices on North 6th Street in Philadelphia. As a youth, Joseph had developed a lung condition, presumably tuberculosis, but seemed to be miraculously cured by a concoction of chamomile, wormwood, catnip, essence of tansy, hyssop, hops, whorehound, comfrey, senega, gum arabic, licorice, elecampane, Indian turnip, lemon juice, brandy, and water. He decided to sell this miracle cure to the public, and in 1836 he marketed it as Schenck's Pulmonic Syrup. Nowadays, of course, it would be Pulmonic Tonic. In addition to tuberculosis, it was recommended for sore throat. This soon followed by Schenck's Mandrake Pills, also for tuberculosis, and seaweed tonic with 19.5% alcohol for treating dyspepsia. Thanks to extensive marketing, it was wildly successful, and Dr. Joseph Schenck became a very wealthy man. His bottles and business cards are sought by collectors of 19th century ephemera. I cannot determine how much of Dr. Schenck's fortune may have trickled down to the third or fourth generation nor can I find what C. Morgan Knight's father did for a living. But Knight was doing well. He graduated from Germantown Academy. He'd worked for the brokerage firm of Graham Parsons before joining Lazard Frere, founded in New Orleans in 1848. He was a member of the prestigious Racket Club on Rittenhouse Square and a skilled sailor. I find record of him being among the crew of the Pan America in a September 1928 voyage. Late on Monday afternoon, 25 October 1937, 
Knight was shopping on the sixth floor of the John Wanamaker store when he heard a shout for help and saw a man running down the stairs with others distant in pursuit. Knight immediately sprang forward and grabbed the man around the waist. The fleeing man, Albert W. Gregg, had just robbed a cashier on the eighth floor of $1,200 cash and was making his escape. Gregg pulled a 38 caliber revolver from his shoulder holster and fired at Knight, who fell, saying, You got me. About 3.40 p.m., Albert Gregg had strolled coolly into the store and went straight to the 8th floor cashier's area where he brandished his revolver and leaped from a wooden bench over the glass partition walling in the cashier's cage. He scooped up as much cash as he could and stuffed his pockets and then turned and headed to the stairway. The cashier in charge of the cage pressed an alarm button to alert store detectives and sound sirens. Greg raced quickly down the stairs, and he stumbled as he reached the sixth floor, landing on his hands and knees. A girl customer approached to help him, but fainted when he flashed the gun at her. He shot Knight a few seconds later and later told police, I aimed low so I wouldn't hurt him much. He ran down the rest of the stairs with the detectives in hot pursuit, then out the door and north on 13th Street. He commandeered a taxi at gunpoint and forced the driver to take him a few blocks north to 13th and Filbert, where he jumped out and ran into City Hall Annex. A city patrolman was alerted to what was going on and took off in pursuit with his gun drawn. Greg doubled back and darted for the entrance of the Hotel Vendig at the southeast corner of 13th and Filbert. But a bellhop standing just inside the door noted the commotion and jammed the revolving door with his foot. The police officer had arrived with gun drawn, and Greg meekly surrendered. In the meantime, still conscious but in obvious distress, Knight was taken to Jefferson Hospital for emergency care. Before he went to surgery, the police brought Greg to his bedside, and Knight identified him as his assailant. Knight had been shot in the left lower abdomen and received two units of blood before Chief of Surgery Dr. Thomas A. Shallow. Shallow is buried at Laurel Hill West, Plymouth Section 409. Performed a laparotomy and closed 11 perforations, eight in the small intestine and three in the large intestines. The damage was done, and in those last years before the availability of penicillin, peritonitis was inevitable. It didn't take much research to discover that Greg, age 32, was a paroled convict wanted on suspicion of murder in Wisconsin. Fourteen witnesses of the robbery and shooting at Wanamaker's identified him as the culprit. After four days of questioning, he confessed to the robbery and the shooting. But Charles Morgan Knight, age 28, died from his wounds two days after being shot. His funeral services were conducted at St. Paul's Church in Chestnut Hill on Saturday, 30 October 1937 and he was interred in the family plot at Laurel Hill West in the Woodlawn section, Lot 58. Greg was indicted for murder by a grand jury on 5 November 
and entered a plea of not guilty five days later when he was arraigned before Judge Harry S. McDevitt, a man with a reputation as a hanging judge. His trial started on 22 November 1937, less than a month after the shooting. The district attorney sought the death penalty. It was an all-male jury. Thirteen women called for duty were excused, either as conscientious objectors or because they had formed opinions on the case. Hundreds of disappointed spectators jammed City Hall corridors and were denied entrance to the court. Greg's defense for shooting Knight was, he was no cop, he had no right to stop me. The trial lasted one day, and the jury returned a guilty verdict with a sentence of death in the electric chair. It was 23 November, 26 days after the shooting. Judge McDevitt made the sentence official on New Year's Eve. Albert W. Gregg was to die for the murder of C. Morgan Knight. Later in January, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Gregg was discovered digging a hole through the wall of his cell at Moya Mensing Prison using a crude entrenching tool made from a piece of iron he had torn from his bed and that he was immediately transferred to Holmesburg Prison. William B. Mills, superintendent of county prisons, denied this, saying that Greg was on a constant death watch with guards observing him virtually all the time. While on Murderer's Row, Greg was constantly tormented by Claude L. Hall, identified in a newspaper article as, quote, the Negro murderer who delighted in tormenting Greg from his adjoining cell, end quote, by a constant chatter of, I'm the ghost of the man you killed, here I come, death is coming to get you, at all hours of the day and night. But on 11 February 1938, Claude Hall, who was scheduled to die on 3 March, committed suicide in his cell by hanging. He left three notes, one to Judge McDevitt, who had also heard his case, when you die, I will be waiting in hell, and you won't die like I will. You will die with your shoes on, with hot lead tearing through your body, and the sidewalk will be your dying bed. Wait and see. Time will tell what you did to many men. McDevitt died of a heart attack at age 65 in 1950, after he had tried an estimated 60,000 people. And on Monday... 28 March 1938, Albert W. Gregg was put to death in the electric chair at Holmesburg Prison for the murder of C. Morgan Knight, 154 days after committing the crime. The disposal of his remains is unknown. Knight's widow, Mary Beverly Cox, 1909-1953, Remarried in 1941 to Robert George Buchanan, 1905-1975. They are interred together in Norristown.
mid-December edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I'm going to tell you of an old soul guitarist of whom Pitchfork Magazine once said, somebody has something to say on the acoustic guitar that hasn't been said before. After we go through a brief history of finger-picking guitarists, we come to Jack Rose, who is interred in the Green Burial Plot at Laurel Hill West, a player with prolific output and a small but fiercely loyal group of fans. This will be a music story. I like doing music stories so I can put samples in. And you're going to hear samples from guitarists Charlie Patton, Blind Blake, John Fahey, Robbie Bashow, and lots and lots of Jack Rose. Look and listen for this one on December 15th. Then the January episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Brand new year, brand new stories. It's going to be about the early days of Big Pharma from a Philadelphia perspective. You've heard of Wyeth Pharmaceuticals? Well, the Wyeth brothers are interred at Laurel Hill East. And both Smith and French of the pharma giant Smith Klein and French are there. That is now part of GlaxoSmithKline. And good old acetaminophen a.k.a. Tylenol, a.k.a. Paracetamol. It was discovered by the chemist Robert Lincoln McNeil Jr., son of the founder of McNeil Pharmaceuticals. The McNeil family is interred in what I call billionaire's row at Laurel Hill West. Look for this one on or about January 1st, 2024. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Receptive buses are 1 and 61. Admission is always free. Not the tours, but just admission if you want to come take a look around. As is parking in the tiny lot across the street. There's an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West, 222 Belmont Avenue in Ballack-Kidwood. Parking at the main entrance and at the bell tower. If you want to use public transportation, it's a, it's a little bit inconvenient. It's not too bad. You can take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. And then you have to leave Philadelphia. You're going to cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and you will be in Lower Marion of Montgomery County. Come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. And if you want a self-guided tour, I have done self-guided tours in both directions for walking the bicycle route at Laurel Hill West. You can find them with the rest of the podcast. So, as I say, both Laurel Hill East and West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Come along if you're a dog walker, a bike rider, if you're a skateboarder, bird watcher, tree and plant lovers. We, we want everyone to come and enjoy these cemeteries. They are beautiful places. Do some, you, you'll, you'll be amazed at your creativity with photography when you have all of these marvelous monuments and bits of stained glass to focus on and take pictures. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And I invite you again, become a friend of Laurel Hill. You will have an opportunity for several members-only special tours, one or two gatherings, some inside the mausoleum visits. They are a couple of the liveliest spots in town, despite being cemeteries. 
Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrell. All Bones considered Laurel Hill stories and biographical bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Jill Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University. And you can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. Remember to keep body and soul together. Until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear the references that I used for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. For the murder of George K. Smith, I used mostly contemporary newspaper articles from 1863 through the late 1870s. I did find a few articles talking about the controversy of Molly Maguire. The uh, one article that I really liked is called The Mythical Qualities of Molly Maguire. It was written by Harold Orand, A-U-R-A-N-D, and William Gudelanus. The source of that is Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, April 1982, Volume 49, Number 2, pages 91 to 105. Then there is the Molly Maguires in Popular Culture. The author of that is Kevin Kenny. That's from the Journal of American Ethnic History, Summer of 1995, Volume 14, Number 4, pages 27 through 46. The Scars of the Molly Maguires, author Nathan Leslie, North American Review, September, October 2001, volume 286, number 5, pages 38 to 44. And finally, the Molly Maguires, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, and the Bloody Summer of 1875, also by Kevin Kenny. That's from Pennsylvania Legacies, volume 14, number 2 pages 18 to 25. And I'm sure there's lots of other material out there about the Molly Maguires, but those are the four articles that I found helped me the most. Tom Keel's story on Malin Hutchinson Heberton and Singleton Mercer comes from Tom's book, Wicked Philadelphia. You can find that pretty much any bookstore or online, of course, any of the online bookstores will probably have copies of it. Uh, Tom did all of his own research on that and uh, just read the chapter out of the book. I want to thank him for that. That was a terrific, terrific story. The tragic slaying of George E. Haas by the disgruntled ex-employee, all of that came out of the newspaper, as did my information on Charles Morgan Knight. That was all out of the newspaper. And for that matter, Frederick and Ida Chadwick. That was from one newspaper article. Again, I want to thank Khalif Rivers for letting me use a script that was podcast ready as far as I'm concerned. I verified some of the information in the newspaper's articles, but I didn't see any reason to change anything because he did such a beautiful job of writing that. Khalif is a still life photographer from Philadelphia. Check out his website, kriversphoto.com slash about, and then check out the gallery for some of his beautiful stuff. Uh, I got this from a blog that he does also. And finally, Sarah Hamill and her amazing story of The Butler Did It, Ella Jarden. That was all from 
newspapers. That's very similar to the story that Sarah tells on her tour that she gives of Laurel Hill West of people with unusual deaths. I think that is it. That tells you pretty much everything I used in putting this one together. I hope you had fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back for more. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay well.